if this was an envelope that you mailed your vote in and your signature was there, they would have to save it. And if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. And streaming coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, Radio Sputnik, and other fine affiliates blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us here today. Um, as voters head to the polls in Alabama, we've got some uh, lots of news on that coming up momentarily. Uh, but hey, by the way, public service announcement. Uh, since Donald Trump has cut funding for such announcements, I'm doing them for free here, apparently. Open enrollment ends on the federalhealthcare.gov exchange this Friday, December 15th, for the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, since Donald Trump has cut the enrollment time in half. It will end Friday, December 15th. So enroll now if you haven't already or if you'd like to change your plan there's actually, because of some stupid things that Donald Trump did to try to kill Obamacare, there's actually some things that have made it much better for many people. So get over there to healthcare.gov because the website is has been reporting, uh, has been causing problems. Uh, I wanted to get it into more detail, but I can't because of some breaking news here. But suffice to say, it's been causing problems. They are likely to get much worse under the crush of the final two days of open enrollment on Thursday and Friday. So don't wait. Uh, Friday night at midnight, West Coast time, so 3 a.m. East Coast time on Saturday morning is your last chance. If you uh, have if you live in one of those states where they don't have their own exchange, but they rely on the federal health exchange here in, in California and other states that have their own like New York, we can actually continue to enroll or change plans until uh, middle or end of January, I believe. Uh, but for the federal exchange, 
Deadline, Friday, December 15. Yeah, and for everybody in every state, you know, if you know a young person who is new to the health insurance industry, make sure you check in with them. Make sure they understand what they need to do because this stuff is all new and very confusing. That's the voice of the lovely Desi Doyen, who will also join us a little bit later for another Green News report yep. as the state of California continues to burn. But uh, that may be the least of our problems, what the Trump administration is 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 doing to the nation and the planet. Well, just uh, stand by for Desi's <laughs> great news, Green News report coming up in a bit. But as I mentioned, voters, uh, as they go to the polls on Tuesday, there have been problems. Shocking, I know, in Alabama, in the U.S. Senate special election between Republican Roy Moore and Democrat Doug Jones. Uh, and indeed, a story that we have been covering uh, on our on our program, I think before the rest of the national media picked it up, uh, has a new development today. It was covered on our previous program as a good news story. There was a, uh, an encouraging ruling in uh, in state court that has turned out not so good after all, after late filing at the state Supreme Court by Alabama's Secretary of State and the uh, and the state election administrator after we went off air on our program yesterday. So um, just to sort of uh, explain where we are here, last week we talked to John Brakey, longtime election integrity advocate, ch- champion of transparency, uh, about his attempt to make sure that the state of Alabama retained ballot images. And those are the essentially the photographs that are taken by the optical scanners, by the digital computer scanners of the paper ballots that are, cross, uh, that are cast across the state of Alabama. And those ballot images can be useful because uh, election officials make it very hard, if not impossible, for citizens to actually look at paper ballots to determine whether the computers have tabulated them correctly or not. But the ballot images, the photographs that are taken by those computer scanners, hell, those can be given out to any anybody and anyone without having to worry about messing up the paper ballots in any way, shape, or form. So some 85% of the scanners in Alabama are the newer versions that do take these digital photographs, and if those systems are set to retain those photographs, then they can be shared with the public. However, the state of Alabama did not plan to retain those ballot images. They had set their systems, according to Brakey, to only save them in the event of a write-in ballot rather than all of the votes. And so uh, last week we talked to Brakey, John Brakey, uh, who was heading to Alabama, had been organizing this lawsuit that was about to be filed in order to try to retain those ballot images, making the argument that uh, the computers, in fact, use those images to count results rather than the ballots themselves. They don't count the ballots. They count those images And federal law requires that in federal elections, all election materials be kept for 22 months. That was the case he took to court uh, yesterday. And here here was his uh, just a a portion of his uh, comment near the end of our conversation last week on this program. This case is about one thing, basically stopping them from destroying the images. You say to the judge, Your Honor, could you please tell these people to follow the law? And That's so, all. so this Simple case, case this case is currently in court, John. Uh, it waiting will be for filed yeah. no later than Wednesday. We'll probably win it very easily because the evidence we have is 
it's a federal election, and under federal law, you must save everything for 22 months. If this was an envelope that you mailed your vote in and your signature was there, they would have to save it. And so the judge will decide. The judge will decide whether to order, basically order counties uh, that have this feature to turn it on and to preserve those ballot images yeah. if you're successful. That's what we're hoping. Good. But if we don't wind up doing it, we're going to educate a lot of people. We figure when this thing breaks, it should go widespread. Brad, forty-five percent of the country has it. Sixty percent by the 2018. By 2020, eighty-five percent of all the scanners in this country will be digital. Thank God. And, well, we'll see, and we'll see if they turn on the ballot images. John Brakey, John Roberts Brakey over at Facebook. So that was, uh, that was my conversation with John Brakey last week about this, and uh, I noted, we'll see. We'll see if they turn them on. We'll see if they turn them on, whether it's in Alabama or any of these other states where Brakey has vowed to go to court uh, to, uh, to make sure that those ballot images are retained by the voting systems by the tabulation systems where uh, the, the tabulations are digital, digitally scanned and they retain these images. Well, we got good news on yesterday's show. In fact, John Brakey and uh, the plaintiffs there in Alabama, which were a Republican, a Democrat, an independent and a minister, I think, they were successful at the circuit court level and they got an order from the court uh, ordering the secretary of state and the state election director to, in fact, tell the uh, precincts, tell election officials, tell all of the counties that they should basically open up the admin setting on those tabulators and uh, just choose the other option to retain all images. That was the good news that was encouraging might make transparency and oversight a little bit easier in this very contentious U.S. special election uh, on Tuesday in Alabama. Well, now that was the good news. And uh, this morning from AL.com, Connor Sheets reports, Alabama is allowed to destroy digital voting records created at the polls during today's U.S. Senate election after all. He notes that at 1.36 p.m. on Monday, a Montgomery County City uh, Circuit Court judge issued an order directing Alabama election officials to preserve all digital ballot images at polling places across the state. But at 4.32 p.m. Monday, attorneys for Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill and Ed Packard, the state administrator of elections, filed a, quote, emergency motion to stay that order, which the Supreme Court of Alabama granted just minutes after Merrill and Packard's motion was filed. And it was filed ex parte. And what that means is it was filed without the opposition being there. They went to court by themselves and the opposition had no time, no chance, was given no opportunity to come and argue against that case. AL.com notes that by granting the stay, the court effectively told the state that it does not have to preserve the digital ballot images which are essentially digitized versions of the paper ballots that voters fill out at the voting booth. The court will hold a hearing on December 21 about whether to dismiss the case outright, but that, but by that point, the state will have had ample time to destroy the digital ballot images legally under the stay. The attorney for the uh, for the four Alabama voters who sued, Priscilla Duncan, uh, said that this was an attempt to 
in, in, in that the attempt was to force election officials to preserve those digital records, but that the arguments the state made at the Supreme Court was, quote, spurious and misleading. They made a bunch of spurious arguments that they don't have the authority to tell election officials across the state what to do. Well, they're already telling them what to do, she said, and that it will cause uh, a bunch of confusion at the polls, but the voters wouldn't even know if they changed their retention policy, Duncan, uh, Duncan argued. Uh, at least in the newspaper, she was not given the chance to do that in court, unfortunately. So uh, trying to figure out what happened, why they were not given this opportunity in court. Uh, I spoke with Brakey earlier today. I spoke with uh, his uh, partner, the attorney, Chris Souter, about all of this, trying to figure out what the hell went on. I had some concerns when I talked to John originally that bringing this case this late in the game could result in something that we have seen in uh, recent elections by the Supreme Court, something that is called the is referred to as the Purcell principle. Rick Hassan, the University of uh, the, the University of California at Irvine election law professor, has sort of carved out, explained what this Purcell principle is. Essentially, if you go to the Supreme Court with a case right before an election, even if you are right on the case, even if um, you know not finding in your way would cause millions of voters to be disenfranchised, the U.S. Supreme Court in recent years has determined that, well, if that they can't make a decision that close to an election that might uh, cause havoc and cause confusion at the polling place, even if it might save the votes of thousands of voters. Uh, they don't want to take the chance of causing chaos on Election Day. And I had been concerned that this case being brought so late uh, in the game here might be met with uh, that the courts might meet it with uh, something like that, saying, no, it's too late to do that. Now, I spoke with uh, both Brakey and the attorney, Chris Souter, both of whom said, no, that was not the argument that the uh, defendants here, the, essentially the secretary of state and the state election director, that that was not the argument that they made in circuit court. But apparently that is at least part of the argument that they made at the Supreme Court and that the plaintiffs were not allowed to respond to. Reading from the uh, from the motion filed by the state, uh, they argue uh, the equities also weigh against the plaintiffs. Uh, an order of this sort, which purports to direct non-party election officials to make major, they call this major, last-minute changes to the machines, is likely to cause confusion and is likely to disrupt election activities. While the secretary is only ordered to transmit the circuit court's injunction, basically telling the counties that, yes, they must flip this switch on their uh, on the voting systems, on the tabulation systems. While the secretary of state is only ordered to transmit the court's or injunction, election officials will likely read it to require action on their part. The harm to the public will far outweigh any benefit. <laughs> To the plaintiffs. Sorry, I have to laugh at that. Yeah. The the harm to the uh, to the public of having their ballots actually counted and verified is counted. Yeah, that's terrible. Well, that's the argument that the state was making, and I apparently know, the crazy. supreme and apparently the Supreme Court the accepted Alabama it. The Alabama State Supreme Court. The Alabama State Supreme Court. Roy Moore, the Republican candidate, his former colleagues. Remember, he used to be the chief justice of that Alabama Supreme Court until he was twice tossed off the uh, off the bench for refusing to follow federal orders. 
Um, so it's it's uh, it's kind of amazing here. Uh, everyone is sort of amazed that this was allowed to go through. Uh, I had a conversation also with Hassan on Twitter today uh, about this, and um, he you know seems to recognize that one non nefarious explanation for this would be some version of the Purcell principle at the state or local level here. Um, but that the um, that the plaintiff should have been allowed to, to respond, should have had the been given the opportunity to show up at the court and respond. Now, Chris Souter, uh, who I spoke with in Alabama today, said that uh, this was filed a little bit before 5 p.m. And that minutes later, by 520, the court had the Supreme Court of Alabama had issued its order to stay the lower court's order pending a hearing in later in December, which by then everything will be too late. So uh, he says that uh, he had the, he told me that he has he said, I have the feeling that they were pushing the send button to let the plaintiffs know as they were walking into the Alabama State Supreme Court chambers. So uh, hope to get more on this tomorrow. Hope to um, uh, Chris Outer may be able to join us on the show to explain this and where we are. Who knows? What results uh, we will get from uh, from the state of Alabama? Uh, there have also been other problems voting. the uh, uh, The election protection group, which is run by the National Lawyers Committee, eight six six hour vote, uh, says that uh, reports are coming in that um, some registered voters are being labeled as invalid voters on the Alabama state website, and when they show up to vote presumably because they had not voted in a recent election, but others who have been, in fact, told that their ballot, uh, that their registration was invalid, say they voted recently in very recent elections. Now, where that was the case, you are supposed to be allowed to, to, uh, to, to fill out a provisional ballot, but Alabama also makes you fill out another form to go with that provisional ballot. And among the things you are required to tell them is your birth county. And if you don't know what county you were born in, uh, especially, you know, if it's another state, if you were born in another state, well, your ballot may not be counted. So there is likely to be a fight about all of this. Almost guaranteed, I think, no matter which way it goes for the Republican Roy Moore, for the Democrat Doug Jones, uh, we will be following following this, as you can imagine, uh, in in our next thrilling episode, where hopefully we'll have some sort of results, whether they're accurate results or not. I can't tell you now. uh Before we get to a break here, uh, depending on uh, who is making the case. AP reports today, Alabama's special Senate election on Tuesday is about either continuing the Trump miracle in Washington or allowing decency to prevail back home where you have uh, the Republican Roy Moore accused of uh, sexual mis- misconduct, I guess is what we call it, uh, with a whole bunch of teenagers some years ago, one as young as 14 years old. AP reports that the intensity of this race has spawned a steady stream of fake news stories that fill social media feeds of interested people in Alabama and beyond. An Associated Press analysis in cooperation with Facebook counted as many as 200 false or misleading reports 
heading into the weekend before the election in Alabama. One website, for example, claimed that one of the women who have accused more of sexual misconduct had recanted her story. In fact, she did not. Meanwhile, Roy Moore's detractors took to social media to claim that he had written in a 2011 textbook that women shouldn't hold elected office. In fact, he did not do that. Though he has argued that homosexuality should be illegal and that Muslims should not be allowed to run for office and that America was great when we had slavery. That part, that is real news. But the line between fake news and real news is getting harder and harder to distinguish, to be frank. And while many cite fake news purportedly from Russian sources, but really from all over the place last year as a, as a key to Donald Trump's supposed win... In 2016, a new report out recently finds that the problem is not fake news, but real news. That it was the coverage of the uh, by the mainstream media, not the fake news and the Facebook ads, etc., that likely ended up costing Hillary Clinton the election. That story with one of the authors of that report is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com donate. And thank you. Oh boy. But was it real news or was it fake news? Hard to tell these days. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last week, the Columbia Journalism Review published what I believe is a very important 5,000 word, more than 5,000 word study by two researchers, D Duncan J. Watts and David M. Rothschild. Examining what the hell happened during the 2016 presidential election within the media that helped lead to the stunning result of Donald J. Trump winning enough votes in enough places to somehow become president of the United States. I, I want to read from the lead of their report, uh, and one of the authors will, will join us shortly. Uh, here's how it begins. Since the 2016 presidential election, an increasingly familiar narrative has emerged concerning the unexpected victory of Donald Trump. Fake news, much of it said to have been produced by Russian sources, was amplified on social networks such as Facebook and Twitter, generating millions of views among a segment of the electorate eager to hear stories about Hillary Clinton's unworthy, untrustworthiness, unlikability, and possibly even criminality. So-called alt-right news sites like Breitbart and The Daily Caller supplemented the outright manufactured information with highly slanted and misleading coverage of their own. The continuing fragmentation 
of the media and the increasing ability of Americans to self-select into like-minded filter bubbles exacerbated both of those phenomena, generating a toxic brew of political polarization and skepticism toward traditional sources of authority. The report goes on, alarmed by these threats to their legitimacy and energized by the election of a president hostile to their very existence, the mainstream media, the mainstream corporate media, has vigorously shouldered the mantle of truth-tellers, writes Watts and Rothschild. The Washington Post, for example, changed its motto to Democracy Dies in Darkness. One month into the Trump presidency and the New York Times launched a major ad campaign reflecting the nuanced and multifaceted nature of truth during the Oscar broadcast back in February. But at the same time, journalists have have stepped up their already vigorous critiques of technology companies, companies like Facebook in particular, but also Google and Twitter, highlighting the potential ways in which algorithms and social sharing have merged to spread that misinformation that this report talks about at the top. Many of the mainstream media's worst fears were reinforced by a widely cited BuzzFeed article reporting that uh, that the 20 most shared fake news articles on Facebook during the final three months of the campaign outperformed the 20 most shared real news articles published over those over that same period from places like The New York Times and The Washington Post. Well, that sounds very troubling. Numerous stories have reported on the manipulation of Facebook's ad system by groups said to be Russian affiliated. We uh, and and the uh, authors of the report note, we agree that fake news and misinformation are real problems that deserve serious attention. We also agree that social media and other online technologies have contributed to deep seated problems in democratic discourse, such as increasing polarization and erosion of support for traditional sources of authority. Nonetheless, they note. We believe that the volume of reporting around fake news and the role of tech companies in disseminating those falsehoods is both disproportionate to its likely influence in the outcome of the election and serves to divert attention from the culpability of the mainstream media itself. The culpability of the mainstream media itself wouldn't be the first time of course, that they have attempted to avoid such culpability uh, or earned it. Joining us now to discuss their findings in this report, including just uh, some gobsmacking numbers, frankly, throughout the entire thing, when all of this is looked at objectively, um, is uh, is the, uh, the co-author of the report, David M. Rothschild. He's an economist at Microsoft Research in New York City. He has a Ph.D. in applied economics from the Wharton School of Business. Hey, that's Donald Trump's old alma mater. Um, and uh, his primary body of work is on forecasting and understanding public interest and sentiment and how the public absorbs information. He's also a fellow at the Applied Statistics Center at Columbia University and the Penn Program on Opinion Research and Election Studies. David Rothschild, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Thank you first for this report. Uh, let's start here with, with with putting the reports on on all of the the Facebook ads, et cetera, the fake news into perspective, presuming that 
there are as as many uh, mostly Democrats are currently suggesting uh, that these uh, these uh, Russian affiliated groups uh, purchased some 3000 ads by uh, these fake accounts traced to Russia with one hundred thousand dollars in ad revenue for Facebook. That sounds like a lot of ads, a lot of money reaching a lot of people. But what did your report find when that number concerning those that fake news and those ads was actually put into context? Well, look, Facebook is, is huge, and the amount of traffic that it gets is incredibly large. And while these numbers are definitely startling and something to study and be interested uh, about, they certainly represent just a tiny, tiny fraction of the consumption on Facebook and even the consumption of news on Facebook, which is really just a small percentage of the consumption on Facebook, as far as we know, because Facebook is relatively closed off. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're talking about literally, literally trillions of posts happen on Facebook over uh, a few months period. Um, and, you know, we estimate that maybe there was uh, 87,000 exposures of, uh, of certain posts, of any posts for every fake news post. And so, Essentially, this is something that we should think about. It's important, um, but it really is just a, a tiny fraction of not just uh, what people consume overall, but even what kind of news they consume. The fact is that when people do consume news on Facebook, most of the time they are consuming mainstream media uh, articles that are being reposted. And, and I think that the BuzzFeed articles are interesting in that it showed that there is a lot of popularity uh, for some big fake news articles. But the thing to remember is that people don't rewrite those articles onto many publications. So uh, an article, per se, on Pizzagate or on the Pope uh, endorsing a candidate, that may have just one instance versus articles on, say, Hillary Clinton's emails or Donald Trump's foundation, or if they exist, articles on actual policy. Uh, there are going to be thousands of iterations of it. So not one of those articles is going to be as huge, probably, as some of these fake news stories, uh, but the topics themselves are, are magnitudes uh, more uh, popular as far as consumption and, and what's produced. And just to be clear, those uh, stories you mentioned, the, the, the Pope uh, endorsing, I think it was the Pope endorses D- Donald Trump was the, was the story that was going around, or the, the Pizzagate claim about uh, an alleged sex ring, child sex ring that was being run by Hillary Clinton out of a pizza store somehow. Um, those are those are the fake news. They get a lot of coverage, uh, and according to BuzzFeed, they got the same amount of coverage as the top twenty New York Times stories, uh, or I guess mainstream media stories, whether it's Times or Washington Post. But you argue that there are so many stories, so many more stories put out by the New York Times and the Huffington Post and legitimate outlets that that far outweighs. Uh, the, the, the power of those 20 fake news stories that went around? Without a doubt. Um, basically, you know, it is always important to remember that most people are not consuming that much news on any given day. You know, most people mm-hmm. are you know, learning about Justin Bieber and Katy Perry and what their friends did yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those people that do consume or when they do consume, uh, the vast majority of the articles are articles that are originating from traditional mainstream media sites. It's just that for any given topic, uh, there may be just one article on Pizzagate, but there could be dozens or hundreds or thousands of articles on a particular incident 
that happen in the campaign from the mainstream media. So it, it dilutes the power of any individual article. Mm. Um, but overall, they're just much, much more likely, uh, you know, tens of thousands of times more likely to be consuming uh, mainstream media pieces rather than fake news pieces. And uh, just to put some perspective on those numbers, those uh, fake accounts that were putting out those ads uh, in question on Facebook, uh, generating $100,000 in ad revenue. Uh, at the same time, Facebook's ad revenue in the fourth quarter of 2016 was $8.8 billion or $96 million per day. So sounds like a lot of money, $100,000 until you put it in, into, into perspective. Um, you know, with with what is actually flowing out there across those uh, across those outlets, um, you reviewed a number of academic studies uh, on the effect that those fake news and those ads had on the electorate, finding that even in, I guess, the worst case scenarios, uh, those fake ads, that fake news, et cetera, could not account for the number of votes that uh, Trump ended up reportedly receiving to win the election where he did? Look, it's 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 tough game, obviously, trying to dissect it. Mm-hmm. There's been a couple of articles um, that have tried to look at this and how much people recall the different stories and, and whether or not uh, it looks like it was impactful on their vote choice. Um, but ultimately, uh, one way to think about it is those people who were vigorously consuming fake news uh, uh, and actually believed it mm-hmm. uh, are people who were predisposed to consuming a lot of news about elections uh, already and are likely to already have fairly strong positions. Uh, moderate or independent voters, true swing voters, um, are not going to get deep into the weeds in right or left-wing conspiracy stories uh, when, they're, when they're consuming news. And so a lot of this is about reinforcing. It could lead to different levels of enthusiasm, uh, engagement possibly uh, with uh, donating or volunteer time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's not really going to be something that's going to affect a lot of people who are on the margin of who to vote for mm. uh, or, or whether or not to vote. Um, it definitely is, again, a very important story. Uh, the Russian influence in the election is an extremely important story for uh, our democracy and, of course, security of elections moving forward. Um, but this is all to say is that uh, the mainstream media really is the big story and what they chose to cover and how that impacted uh, those people who casually consumed news and got that from the mainstream media. Yeah, and that's, I guess, where you go. You you seem to say, yes, there are concerns about those other issues, but once again, it comes back to the mainstream uh, media. So if, if fake news was troubling but not determinative, um, how was the mainstream media's coverage uh, at least as, if not more, determinative about how people voted. I know you looked at sort of sentence by sentence. Uh, you went through the, the New York Times coverage uh, in the run-up to the election. And again, some startling numbers in your report. I'll link over to it at Columbia Journalism Review. Uh, but sort of uh, t- top line, what did you find when you went through sentence by sentence of, uh, of the coverage in the mainstream so we went, media? We went a bunch of different ways to yeah. uh, calculate uh, what was being covered between a kind of miscellaneous campaign stories, uh, scandals and personal stories, uh, and policy. Um, and my personal favorite to kind of focus in on is, 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 is looking at the New York Times front page. And, and I want to say that we focus on the New York Times for a particular reason, which is to say we know that it's a, a thought leader and also we expect, uh, we expect a lot from them mm-hmm. as far as uh, quality. Um, and while there's a lot of really cool big data stuff in there, uh, the interesting 
thing is when you kind of read through the actual coverage on the on the front page, mm-hmm. you do get a better perspective of what people are truly consumed because most people really just skim articles, they read headlines, right. etc. Um, and we cataloged uh, 150 stories that talked about the campaign um, over the course of September 1st to November 8th, uh, 2016. So that's 69 days, 150 stories. Um, and of that, there were just 10 stories, uh, just 10 stories where they actually uh, really touched on a, a specific policy initiative of either of the candidates, five of them, uh, that cover uh, both candidates' position. You know, the, the ideal thing that you would want the paper of record to be supplying to people. Here's what one candidate thinks. Here's what another candidate thinks. These are how they differ. Uh, we're talking a, a small fraction. The vast majority of stories uh, were miscellaneous campaign stories. Um, uh, over 50% of them, they're talking about the horse race, momentum. Uh, and then you see uh, a bunch of stories about either uh, Trump or Clinton's uh, scandals, uh, as they were. Uh, that's clocking in at, at over 35%. And, and this very small percentages, 15% less, actually talk anything about policy, with even smaller percentage actually talking about the policy themselves. It's really a damning uh, look at the priorities that the mainstream media were projecting out there uh, as the important topic for people to cover. It was all about the horse race, all about the scandals, not about the impact of the election itself on policy, which is ultimately why we have elections and ultimately uh, defines the impact of these elections. And, le- and, and let me just underscore some of those numbers, because this comes straight from the report, and it is just mind-boggling. Uh, five out of 150 front-page articles that the New York Times ran over the last, most critical months of the election attempted to compare the candidates' policies. Just five out of 150, and only 10 out of that same 150 described the policies of either candidate at all in any detail. So it was all just scandal and horse race coverage, basically? That's right, and and we highlight kind of two things. And Number one is uh, that there is a six-day period mm-hmm. um, from October 29th to November 3rd, really right there at the end of the election, yeah. was on November 8th, where there were 10 front-page articles on Hillary Clinton's email circuit. Ten articles. That was the same amount of articles that talked about policy during the entire election cycle uh, in a six-day period, and it's really numbing to see this, especially understanding that there is ultimately uh, not a serious story there. It's ultimately generated from Comey coming public with the investigation of, of more uh, data coming off of Anthony Weiner's hard drive. Um, but ultimately, uh, this was not a focus that was determined by God. This was not a focus that was determined uh, by anything other than the mainstream media itself deciding that this is the type of thing people want. Um, and this was a decision they made. They didn't focus very much on policy. Um, and they're going to say that people wanted to read about the email scandal. Um, I'm going to argue that they made the email scandal the top story, and so people consumed it because mm. this is what they were being told by the media was the important topic of the day, rather than the differences in public uh, uh, policy positions of the candidates. It has, and when, yeah. please, no, go ahead. And when they did talk about public policy, I just really want to emphasize this as well, um, in, even on the scandals, a lot of the coverage, if you actually look into it, you realize in hindsight, is all about the impact that this public policy or even scandal has on the campaign and not about the information itself. So despite all of this coverage of the email server, mm-hmm. uh, 
most people do not know the difference between the hack of the DNC, mm. the hack of Podesta's emails, and Hillary Clinton's personal email server, which, to our knowledge, was never hacked. Because yep. the campaign coverage is not about what actually happened, even on these scandals. It's all about how is this going to impact the yeah. electorate. Um, you see the same thing with questions about Donald Trump's uh, sexual assaults or alleged sexual assaults mm -hmm. uh, involving uh, things around the uh, the so-called Access Hollywood tape, uh, mm -hmm. a nice euphemism that, that doesn't get into details of what he actually discussed, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, you know sexually assaulting women and getting away with it. Um, and so you really realize that even though they cover these things, uh, they don't get into the meat of it. And it's really hard for readers, even... If you read cover to cover the New York Times during the course of the election cycle, you would not be that well informed about the differences between these two candidates. That's particularly damning. Uh, and it's a great point you make, uh, David Rothschild, the fact that uh, even in their scandal coverage, uh, they don't do a good job of explaining what the scandal actually is or isn't. And we found ourselves on this uh, on this program in the in the lead up to the election trying to explain what actually uh, was and wasn't there, what was found in those, uh, whether it was the, the, the hacked emails, uh, which in truth weren't particularly damning, uh, or in the, 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 the FBI's investigation of her email server, similarly not particularly damning. Uh, and then you had the incidents of the, the, the charges of sexual harassment against Trump, which actually were quite damning and quite detailed, and yet so much of the coverage, even the scandal coverage, was turned into horse race coverage somehow. Have you uh, uh, have you heard from the New York Times uh, since you uh, put out this report at the Columbia Journalism Review? Have they either covered your uh, report or responded to you in any way? Uh, no, we haven't uh, seen anything uh, other than David Leonhardt, who is uh, um, a columnist for the Times, did uh, put it out in his daily brief mm -hmm. uh, uh, the day after he came out. So people have read it, and it's something we do look forward to discussing uh, with people. Um, always open to these discussions, because we have seen a, a rather dramatic uh, shift in coverage uh, post-election. Uh, mm -hmm. We've seen a lot more critical and, I would argue, more objective coverage coming out of these uh, New York Times and the Washington Post and other papers. And to be very, very fair to them, uh, you see from just how Donald Trump responds to them how difficult it is to provide objective coverage mm. versus fluffy or false equivalency coverage. Mm -hmm. Because when you do a false equivalency coverage, you say, this is what this person says, this is what that person says, no one really gets mad at you. Uh, when you try to do objective coverage and say, are continuously hammering home, uh, the impact of, say, the tax bill or uh, continuously hammering home, uh, you know, that one side is right or wrong on a particular policy issue, uh, you are going to get tugged at. You're loose strings. And mm -hmm. this is what happens when they admit mistakes. Um, the, uh, the Republicans at this point, um, and this would happen in the other direction probably if it, if it was the case, you know, really tug at these the small missteps and say, look, you can't trust these people anymore. Right. Um, you know, CNN was not having this problem when they just had Jeffrey Lord on one side and Jack Tapper on the other side. And they're just yelling at each other. But as soon as you start stop putting that other side up there, uh, you become uh, something that is, is much larger target. It's hard work. Uh, but, you know, this is something that we, we hope the media can provide for people. I, I agree. They have gotten somewhat better uh, following the election. But um, how has how has the coverage been in the mainstream media? 
of the mainstream media's own coverage and own culpability during that election uh, compared to their coverage of fake news, fake uh, Facebook ads, etc. There's been a lot of coverage of that of that. I've seen a lot less coverage of the sort of culpability that you you describe in your uh, report at Columbia Journalism Review. And that's right. And so, you know, really, this isn't about relitigating the 2016 election. This is about putting the media on notice moving forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now we see a lot of coverage of the perceived impact of fake news. We see very little coverage of the perceived impact of the lack of news or horse race coverage that came out of the uh, mainstream media in 2016. It does make us uh, more concerned about uh, what we'll see as you move forward. As I said, it's very difficult to provide uh, in-depth objective coverage. Uh, You see so many times in the last few months uh, where the mainstream media wanted to kind of lapse back in to you know, full trusting acceptance of the administration or to provide this kind of comforting false equivalency. And so uh, without kind of a full reckoning over what they did and how that should shift moving forward, I think that it's something that you want to be continuously monitoring uh, because my assumption is, is that you'll see them fall back into this again. And mm-hmm. the example, of course, that's really pertinent here is the coverage of the build-up to the Iraq War, mm-hmm. uh, which was also um, really one-sided uh, and, and really abysmal. Uh, you saw a decent amount of reckoning uh, three or four years out um, from that as the war uh, opinions started to shift, and places like the New York Times uh, uh, came forward with uh, certain columnists being uh, dismissed and mm-hmm. other movements. Um, but you know, then you see this again in the build-up to uh, the Donald Trump election, uh, where they they fell back in line. So I think this is going to be a continuous struggle um, to kind of provide uh, uh, media that lives up to what we hope to be the best of the democratic standards uh, with a little d. Um, but it's definitely something that uh, you just need to keep on monitoring. Yeah, and I have I've got just a minute or two here, but good timing mentioning Iraq there because I had uh, two points I wanted to hit with you before we go. I wanted to say, yeah, I I am old enough to remember when the Mainstream media gigantically screwed up in the lead up to the war and uh, and they did sort of, uh, you know, navel gazing afterwards and, and looked at their their culpability in that uh, they have in some respects gotten better, but they seem to fall back on the same habits and seem to make the same mistakes of following what po- politicians tell them rather than reporting on what the electorate need to know in order to make an informed decision, which seems like the central reason for journalism to exist in the first place, yet they keep failing in this mission. So I guess uh, in context of the election, David, last uh, thought here, um, you know, I guess the, the, the big question is why? Why do they keep failing in the context of the election? Uh, you know, why did they take this tactic of, of, of covering the horse race and the scandals, uh, mostly Hillary, it seems, but uh, rather than policy issues? I mean, surely they weren't anti-Hillary and pro-Trump, right? There, there's another reason why they fall back on these old habits. Uh, are they in the tank? Are they lazy? What, what is your uh, sense of that in, in, uh, in, in looking at this? Well, I don't think they're in the tank or they're lazy. I think, as I said, number one, it's hard work to be objective all the time and push through things that, that don't balance out. So breaking the false equivalency barrier is difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is that a lot of journalists would tell you that they provide context um, but they do so in a way that seems to be in denial of how people actually consume news. So 
if they put context in on the 12th graph, that's just not useful, right? Because mm. most people who consume any given article read a headline or maybe see the Facebook description of it, yeah. um, but they're not getting all the way to the to the 12th graph. Um, and then also, I think like the last thing to remember is, is that we are entering a unique market now, different from the Iraq war time, different from the uh, times uh, even a few decades before that. Mm-hmm. Really, something that is quite new is the push of both right-wing and left-wing media um, in the push in the poll. And so the right-wing media uh, juggernaut was built up quicker and stronger than the left-wing. Uh, you saw this from talk radio in the uh, 90s up until uh, Braveheart and Fox News coming out uh, in more force during this election than we've seen, especially Braveheart being a new force. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see kind of a need to balance and cover what they're doing, and I think that the left-wing media is really starting to come into its own as a balancing force on the other side, and so it's going to be very interesting to see how the mainstream media juggles uh, these polls because they don't want to be seen as forsaking or skipping those stories that uh, are being covered on those mainstream, uh, sorry, those right-wing or left-wing mm-hmm. sites, and so it's going to be a really unique environment, a different environment moving forward, and so seeing how that market evolves uh, along with the news aggregators, which also make a, a very different set of distribution of articles that a given publication is going to have because people are consuming it mm-hmm. from the news aggregators or from the platforms rather than the uh, those websites themselves is going to make it a new environment. And hopefully, um, you know, I have hope that, that with the right push and pull that maybe it could be better. I will go with your hope here because I think I have less of it today, David. But I, uh, I hope you're right, and and uh, and I'm not because I'm I'm worried they're not getting any better. I'm worried they're only afraid of the right wing media. There is no fear of what what you describe as left wing media. Frankly, there is not a lot of left wing media out there at all. But I. I hope you're right. I will uh, link folks to your fascinating study. Uh, Don't blame the election on fake news. Blame it on the media over at the Columbia Journalism Review. That is at CJR.org, but I'll link to that as well. Uh, New report from Duncan J. Watts and my guest today, David M. Rothschild. Uh, you should also follow him on the Twitter, by the on the Twitters, by the way. He's got a very lively uh, Twitter feed at, uh, hard to say here on the radio, but D-A-V, as in Dave, D-A-V-M-I-C-R-O-T, Dave McRot uh, on the Twitters. Do I have that right, David? That's correct. All right. Thank you, sir. Greatly appreciate you joining us today, and thank you again for this report. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, as usual, too much news. Not enough time on the broadcast, so let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. Firefighters have been digging those fire lines to halt the flames, but now the fires are jumping right over them. 
Southern California fire now the fifth largest in state history. These companies are out there shameless lies. Trump administration attacks private company over National Monument lawsuit. Trump to open up East Coast for offshore drilling. Plus, surprise! I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. Trump's EPA has slowed down enforcement actions against polluters. All of those shocks and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Bears Ears alone holds more than 100,000 Native American cultural and archaeological sites. You know, if Trump goes ahead with this plan, I'm worried that Native Americans will stop trusting the federal government. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it's been over a week, and these fires continue to get worse here in Southern California. Yes, indeed they do. President Trump has declared a federal emergency to help free up federal disaster assistance. Firefighters have gained some ground against the five major wind-driven fires burning in Southern California, but not much ground against the Thomas Fire in Ventura County, north of Los Angeles. It could literally feel like you're trying to put out a blowtorch with a squirt gun. The Thomas Fire has burned nearly 400 square miles and is now the fifth largest wildfire in state history. Officials warn it may burn into January. Mm. Of the top 20 largest fires in California history, 13 have all hit since the year 2000. But the Thomas Fire is also moving up the ranks of the state's most destructive wildfires in terms of losses. Of the 20 most destructive fires in California history, five occurred this year alone. And it's also worth noting that while the Thomas Fire may be the fifth largest in state history, it's the number one largest to take place in winter. Meanwhile, Bloomberg News reports that the Trump administration will announce this week a plan to open up vast areas of the Atlantic coast and the coast of Florida to offshore drilling. What could possibly go wrong? These are areas that had previously been off limits to the fossil fuel industry, and he's doing it in spite of bipartisan opposition from state governments. In a statement, the Natural Resources Defense Council said, quote, the Trump administration is trying to grab the pristine ocean waters Americans own and hand them to polluters for exploitation and ruin. This will be interesting because, yes, you're right, Republicans have been against this for quite some time on the East Coast. At least many of them will see if they still are. Especially off the coast of Florida. The Trump administration announced on Friday it will suspend a rule requiring drillers to limit methane leaks from oil and gas operations. Methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide on shorter timescales, but also failure to require drillers to repair these methane leaks has cost U.S. taxpayers billions of dollars in lost royalties from public lands. The New York Times reports that the Trump administration's EPA is far more lenient on polluting industries than previous administrations. Who knew? Since the inauguration, the Trump EPA has pursued 30 percent fewer cases against polluters than during the same period in either the Obama or George W. Bush administrations. That's good news. I'm surprised that 
it is only 30 percent less. Well, the Trump administration, EPA, has also levied fewer and smaller fines against polluters that break the law. And regional EPA officers must get permission from Washington before ordering certain kinds of tests for water and air pollution. Here's the test. Have they donated to the Republican Party lately? (laughs) Good point. In the wake of President Trump's decision to slash the boundaries of Bears Ears National Monument in Utah by 85 percent, now new documents obtained by the Washington Post show a Canadian mining company specifically requested those cuts to Bears Ears in order to make it easier for them to mine uranium. Making Canadian corporations great again. Now the Trump administration and congressional Republicans have launched unprecedented attacks against outdoor retailer Patagonia, a private company, over its lawsuit to block the Trump administration from reducing those national monuments. In an interview on Fox Business News, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke accused Patagonia of lying and then misled viewers about the land being stripped of special federal protection. There's not one square inch, not one square inch of land that is removed from federal protection. So, you know, Patagonia made in China, these, these companies are out there shameless lies. They should focus on how to bring manufacturing back to this country rather than lying to the public about, about losing federal land. Now, the public still owns the land, but now it's being opened to mining and drilling. Plus, Zinke has asked Trump to create a new massive national monument in his own home state of Montana to protect it from fossil fuel drilling. Local media suggests it's because Zinke aspires to run for governor and Montana voters prize their public lands. All for me, none for thee. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Give a national monument to Ryan Zinke in Montana, but everyone else, <laughs> not so much. Nope. Uh, all right, thank you very much. we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, David Rothschild of Columbia Journalism Review. We will link to his report today at, uh, at bradblog.com. And my thanks, as ever, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. And my honor, if you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime, this one or any other, for free, anytime, at bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate uh, to help us stay on the air and continue to do what we try to do every day with real news, not fake news, but real news that matters to you uh, every day of the week. Right now, your support is greatly appreciated and very much needed. It is a crucial moment for the Bradcast, so bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop us email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Until we meet again with some version of results out of Alabama, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>